Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello. Welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Off the top, as always, to thank our Patreon supporters. Thank you very much for all of your pledges and subscriptions and everything else. That is what helps keep us going and keep being able to make the podcast during a time uh, when none of us have any gigs or live shows or pretty much any work, really. So thank you very much for your support. If you would like to support us on Patreon for the Book Shambles podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and you'll get extended episodes each and every week for pledging at any tier and there's extra uh, extra bits and bobs depending on which tier you support us at. We'll also be doing some kind of Book Shambles, Science Shambles, two of our main podcasts, uh, crossovers moving forward as well. So on the Science Shambles podcast, we do a science Q&A show every Sunday live on YouTube that's hosted by Robin and Helen Chersky, where we take audience questions on all manner of scientific subjects. That goes out on a Sunday uh, live on YouTube and then on the podcast feed on Monday. And we're also going to be adding midweek episodes on Science Shambles with Robin and sometimes Helen and Josie as well chatting to science authors who've got new books coming out at the moment. So some of the people we'll be talking to on that are Sir Paul Nurse, the Nobel Prize winner, uh, Kat Arnie, Stuart Clark, Joe Marchant. So if you'd like to listen to those, that's all free as well. You can go to wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to the Science Shambles podcast as well to hear those episodes. Now, this week, our guest is Tim Harford. His new book, How to Make the World Add Up, 10 Rules for Thinking Differently About Numbers, is out today, if you're listening to this podcast, on the day of release. So make sure you go and get a copy of that. And as well as the new book and this episode of Book Shambles, uh, I also did a video with Tim and our regular Shambles chum, stand-up mathematician, Matt Parker, We made a video for the Stand Up Maths channel on YouTube about landmark numbers, which is something Tim talks about in the book, which are things like uh, we know how big something is if we refer to it in the context of a double-decker bus or the size of a football pitch or something like that. So go to Matt's channel on YouTube and you can watch that video. Now on to this episode of Book Shambles. Here is Robin and Josie and Tim. Hello, welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, and uh, we'll get straight. Well, well I'll, tell you, I'll ask quickly, uh, Josie, what have you been reading? Um, I'm still reading uh, Drinking Coffee Elsewhere by ZZ Packer, and I just love it so much. And it's so frustrating because uh, you know, when you're enjoying something so much by a writer you've not read before, and then you're like, great, I shall devour everything they've written. But as far as I can see, They've only written this and it's heartbreaking. I'm like, I want to read 10 novels by you. This is fantastic writing. Yeah, it's like that awful thing when you go, 
What a brilliant, you know, this brilliant debut novel that he wrote shortly before he died. Oh, you know, that kind of, and I've, you know, those things which are, um, I've been reading uh, a lovely book called The Soul of the Ape, which I mentioned on the science Q&A yesterday. It's by a guy called Eugene Murray, who was a very interesting, many different things, poet and uh, advocate. And uh, he was a South African. He was um, some very interesting experiences in the Boer War and stuff like that. And uh, it's all, he basically went and lived uh, with baboons. This was in the early 1920s. And it it was before Jane Goodall. Uh, You know, Jane Goodall would have been, I think, the next great, but, no one knew about it. His book wasn't published until 1969, and uh, he he was a, and he wrote a very interesting book called The Soul of the White Ant, which is about termites, which was um, stolen. His work was uh, reused by the Nobel Prize winning Morris Metalink. Uh, which has greatly disappointed me. Um, but Soul of the Eight, the reason I'm particularly enjoying it is I bought this copy off the internet because it was a beautiful old hardback copy with a wonderful illustration. And it turns out it was owned by John Justin. Yes, Josie, that John Justin. What do you mean, which John Justin? Well, obviously the John Justin who was in Shalkin the Painter and in the 1940 version of The Thief of Baghdad. Oh, must I fill people on in every time? Wow. How did you find it? Where it was it was all by chance. I bought the book. I didn't buy it because it was John Justin's copy. And then I opened it and I found out it was. By the way, I'd like to apologise for everyone for mansplaining John Justin. I uh, needed it. It was not mansplaining whatsoever. Um, I that is so interesting. And also, I think if a writer of fiction isn't appreciated in their time, that's one thing. But when it's somebody who's a scientist, it feels so wrong because you sort of think, oh, that held us all back. I mean, obviously. You could say, you know, fiction not being appreciated during its time is is like detrimental to all of us. Yes, yes, yes. But like that held back other scientists not knowing the things that he'd done. And it's very interesting because basically his position was that we cannot really understand what it is to be human without understanding the behaviour of other primates because he felt that a lot of what we might consider to be our subconscious, unconscious urges, etc., were the animal behaviour that we see overtly in uh, other primates such as baboons. Yeah. So that's what I've been reading. Look at Twitter. It's just throwing your shit around, isn't it? That's all it is. Um, we're joined by Tim Harford, who uh, was on, I think it must have, was it about two years ago you were last on, Tim? I sometimes, I, I can't remember whether it was uh, even because of your speed of writing. And uh, I, I almost can't remember which one, because uh, it, it was messy. Now, was it messy? I, I think it was probably messy. But I, yeah, no, this is, we, I've just finished my ninth book. So now, I'm sorry, Josie, there's none of the romance of like, oh, this book is so perfect. You know, and now I will never read another by Tim Harford. Nine books, fill your boots, <laughs> as many as you like. I think I've, I've got something wrong here. But um, yes, uh, it was, yeah, I think we, we sat in a messy room surrounded by books and talked about, the joys of mess, which is something that I, th- if if I was if at home where I normally am, is something I wish I could show you the spectacle that people who've uh, seen inside my strange loft lair have seen. Um, but your your latest, but now this is. Uh, I suppose it, it, it initially it's it's a very interesting book. I have I, I'm glad that it, it, it's I, I started reading it yesterday, and it is a, such an important book. Uh, and it is so well laid out, and the as usual, the anecdotes and the stories that you use to illustrate the ideas. It is basically it is trying to, as you do with so many things, 
you try to offer us this kind of this life belt that helps us float in a, a sea of strange detritus around information and statistics and that's kind of and and this one in particular where you start if we can start right right at the beginning because you do have uh you start with uh, i suppose an icon uh for for many people especially in epidemiology who is uh, richard doll uh, yes, well, I, I start with, with two different icons and, and contrast them. So I start with Richard Doll and a gentleman called Daryl Huff. Now, Richard Doll uh, was one of the people working with Austin Bradford Hill uh, who provided some of the first compelling evidence that um, smoking uh, dramatically increases your risk of lung cancer. So this is super, super important. Um, but the same year he did that, that was 1954, um, the most popular book in the history of statistics was published. And that book is called How to Lie with Statistics, and it was published by a journalist called Daryl Huff. And lots of people in, you know, in Nerdland, like me, love How to Lie with Statistics. So uh, Ben Goldacre, for example, they said, oh, it's a ripper. And uh, Charles Whelan, who wrote a great book called Naked Statistics, said, oh, yeah, my book's like a, it's like a homage to Darrell Huff's book. And, um, and it's the best-selling, arguably the best-selling statistics book ever written. Uh, and I just got increasingly uncomfortable that this book, which is a lovely little book, it's clever and it's full of cartoons and so on, just got uncomfortable that the most popular book that's ever been written about statistics is, is basically from cover to cover, this warning about misinformation. It's all about how people are going to lie to you and yet the very same year, you've got Richard Doll say, with this incredibly important discovery that is going to save tens of millions of lives. And you think, well, hang on, maybe there's more to this than just, uh, oh, statistics are a vector for bullshit, but don't worry, I'll, I'll teach you how not to be fooled. It's so much more important than that. Well, also, I, when you were saying that the research was done in the 50s, I was so shocked because, and obviously we know why, that you know, uh, it took so long for smoking to be kind of less um, attractive and less um, prevalent and stuff. But, I mean, it's such cosmic bad luck that at that time, that book, which would have kind of somewhat undermined his work, came out. It it just feels like the worst possible time for it. It's like now, if if a book came out that was like, why you shouldn't trust the weatherman, and people being like, no, climate change is real. Stop. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's terribly bad luck, but at the same time, a lot of this is not a coincidence. So um, the, I mean, Big Tobacco basically immediately realised, well, hang on, how are we, we've, we've got a problem because it turns out our product is incredibly dangerous. I mean, like properly dangerous, not like, gluten dangerous but like really really will kill a lot of people and they're trying to figure out well how what do we do about this what's our strategy and they realized well look most smokers are addicted you know they kind of like smoking they want to keep smoking we don't need to persuade them that it's safe just need to make them doubt the evidence that it's dangerous like doubt if we have some doubt then we've got the status quo and the status quo is that all these people are smoking and so this whole sort of strategy was uh, was developed. Um, I mean, there's a there's a great book about this called Merchants of Doubt by uh, Oreskes and, and Conway, two historians. Um, this whole strategy was developed to basically smear the statisticians, smear the scientists in a very subtle, clever way, going, oh, well, you know, the science isn't settled. It's very complicated. You know, we need more research. 
And you know, yeah, it is complicated and we do need more research. So it sounds incredibly wise. What you're basically doing is this, this, this sophisticated stalling tactic to get people not to take Doll and Hill's evidence seriously. And it was so successful that pretty much the same people then went on to try the same trick with climate change. But I mean, one of the one of the little twists in the um, it's a spoiler, but it's only on about page five. So I'll tell you anyway. One of the <laughs> twists in the book is that um, when uh, there was a Senate hearing, or should, you know, are cigarettes dangerous? Should we put warnings on cigarette pack, uh, packets? They got this expert in to basically say, oh, you know, you can't trust the statistics. And it was Daryl Huff. It was this this person that people like me and people like Ben Goldacre really admire for this clever, clever book he wrote. He, he immediately started working on a, a sequel for Big Tobacco um, called How to Lie with Smoking Statistics and was, uh, was hired by the tobacco lobby. He didn't need the money. He didn't need the money, I know. Um, but, but this is why, so one of the things that some listeners will know, um, I present the BBC radio programme called, called More or Less, which is all about trying to understand the world through numbers. And when people stop me and go, oh, I love that radio program you do. Oh, that's nice. And they go, I love that radio program you do. The one that debunks all the rubbish statistics. That's the point at which I go, oh, that's not, um, that's not really what we're trying to do. I mean, yes, we do debunk. There are a lot of rubbish statistics out there. You know, we have to catch politicians, uh, you, know, you know, hold politicians to account. But it's so much more than spotting dodgy statistics. We're trying to understand the world and think really clearly about the world. Uh, and if it's if it's just calling bullshit, then I think you're missing something really important. Yes, it's not coming from a place of nihilism. <laughs> no, no, it really isn't. You no, know, we actually um, we actually want to understand the world. I, I was speaking to um, Matt Parker, the stand-up mathematician, about the book, and and he says, "Oh, so so it's a book about about how to understand statistics." And I was like, almost. No, but no, it's actually a book about how to understand the world. It's a book about how to think clearly about the world. And statistics are just the tool that you use. If you're too focused on the statistics, then you get all caught up in, in all of these clever tricks and these problems. What, what I really want people to do is just to see the world as it is. And of course, statistics, you know, it's like a telescope for Brian Cox. Where would he be without his telescopes? It's the same thing for statistics. Where would social scientists or epidemiologists be without statistics? We need them. They're absolutely vital. Um, actually, what right now, when we're talking about statistics and people being, um, I suppose, cynical of them, because this is the thing that I find interesting, which is very often people will say, well, you can't trust that, you can't trust this, this is fake news. But then they'll give you a statistic or a news story that shows how you're wrong. So you end up in this fiction where, where you go, oh, so you don't believe in evidence because you've got some evidence against the evidence. Yeah. And and that's where I think it, you know, part of that the tricky nature of understanding how we perceive to be what is true. Yeah. So I mean that's one of the reasons why a lot of what I'm trying to do in the book is to talk not just about statistics but the psychology of motivated reasoning or the psychology of political partisanship. So how is it that we uh you know, well there's Richard Feynman's famous uh, saying that the easiest person to fool is yourself. Why is it that we we fool ourselves? What motivates us to fool ourselves? How powerful is that? One of the early stories in the book is there's an incredible story about a, an art forger who basically fools the world's great experts. Then he fools the entire Dutch nation. He um, he was the most astonishing man. Died a hero. 
utter, utter bastard in every way. I mean, a completely reprehensible character. And people just thought of him as some Robin Hood figure. Um, and there's no statistics in that story at all. That story is purely about what was going through the head of the art critic who should have known better, who, who looked at this rotten, rotten picture and said, this is the, basically the greatest work that Vermeer has ever painted. And he was the world's great expert on Vermeer. What, what's the thinking process that allows you to fool yourself that badly? So that's, you know, that's partly what I'm, what I'm interested in, as well as just going, oh, well, you know, correlation and causation and all that sort of um, kind of crunchy statistical stuff. Because I'd not, I mean, that's one of the things that I suppose with age I become increasingly obsessed by, which is the subjectivity of our perception on so many fronts and how you can work out as, as you, you know, do, do lay out in, in not merely in this book as well, but trying to lay out that bit where you go, hang on a minute, my anecdotal experience feels so, in-. I mean, you talk about this quite early on, I think chapter one or chapter, that, that bit of going, right, I now have to weigh up my personal experience with what I believe to be the truth from what I've read in printed material. Yeah. How do I find the balance between the two? Yeah, or, or, or I mean, balance maybe, or integration is the, is the word. Because I mean, your your subjective experience is so much richer than uh, the statistical perspective, but the statistical perspective is so much broader. Um, there's a lovely phrase from Muhammad Yunus, who won the Nobel Peace Prize. He's a kind of microfinance guru, um, and he talks about how he he likes the worm's eye view. You get in there, you're really in the detail, and you you've got your nose up close to everything. And the worm's eye view is better than the bird's eye view. Um, but for me, you need both because birds see a lot as well. They just see something different. And statistics are often the bird's eye view. You're seeing everything. You're seeing it from a long way off. You're going to miss things. The worm's eye view, you're right up there close, your personal experience. You're, you're, but you need, you need both. And you need to figure out if, if these are in conflict, then what's going on? Are the statistics misleading me? Am I seeing a you know, particular slice of the world in a way that's misleading me? Um, and I talk about things like, you know, how can... How do the how is it that statistics show that London transport um, is you know is actually quite underutilised? Whereas every time I get on a tube train, obviously this is pre-pandemic. Every time I get on a tube train, it's really crowded. So how how can those two things both be true? And I sort of tease out how that can happen uh, and how it can be that most of the trains are empty, but everybody who's on a train that train's full. So your subjective experience is totally different to the utilisation of the system. So. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not a straightforward thing to do because you, your, um, your perception of your of what's going on in front of your nose is just so much richer and more detailed and more emotionally laden than a spreadsheet. Mm. So th- this is, um, I'm, I'm, when did you first become interested in statistics? Because you were quite young when you were you were a teenager, weren't you? When you bought Daryl Huff's book. Yeah, well, actually, Daryl Huff's book was in the house. I mean, my 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 mum or my dad must have had it um, on their shelves. Um, but I wasn't trained as a as a statistician. I'm an economist, and obviously, there are certain kinds of economists who are very statistically uh, sophisticated. But I'm not that kind of economist. I was much more a theorist. So I, you know, I studied game theory and I studied the way auctions work. Very good for winning at Monopoly, by the way. Very good at winning at, winning at Monopoly. Hang on, what's your tips? What's your tips and tricks? Oh, so so well. The first the first rule is don't play because it's a terrible game. Yes, uh, 
<laughs> design game. Horrific. Yeah, Settlers of Catan is is your is the game Monopoly wishes it was. Um, I agree. I but, completely agree. But if you if you are playing Monopoly, for, you know, play by the rules, which means everything gets auctioned, which means the game ends much faster. What do you mean by everything gets auctioned? If you don't buy it, the official rules of Monopoly, if you don't uh, buy a property when you land on it, it goes up for auction. So everyone bids for it. I know. Whoa. The game actually has a terminates in a finite limit if you play it that way because the stuff gets sold really fast. It's true. It's true. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is such a tangent, but I feel like anyone watching or listening to this is going to realize now that they've been playing monopoly wrong the whole time monopoly monopoly goes deep the rabbit hole Uh, i'm gonna do a whole podcast i have a podcast called cautionary tales and i'm planning to do a whole cautionary tales about monopoly and what it teaches us about the world and i'm gonna have a the sequel is going to be about dungeons and dragons and what that teaches us about the world so, because anyway. I think it's yeah, I think it's something where people can quite easily be like, well, it shows you that capitalism's for dicks, right? But there's so there's so much more to it, and so much more to it in terms of what an interesting story it is and all of that. But everyone has been playing it wrong all this time. Yeah, well, you you I mean, you realise it was it was invented by a uh, an oh. anti anti capitalist. Oh. Uh, Lizzie oh, McNee, yeah. yeah. So you know the story. You know the story. I mean, oh. it's yeah, so interesting, so interesting. But um, can I say, can you a question, do a season there, of um, those uh, pre- cautionary uh, Dungeons and Dragons films that were made in the nineteen eighties? I don't know if you remember. Yeah. Oh, well, there, there was a whole spate of TV movies because the Dungeons and Dragons at one point was seen as possibly the bridge towards uh, witchcraft, sacrifice, uh, and various other kind of you know yeah. everything that you see in the window of Games Workshop was merely you know just a a, a bridge towards uh, sadism and the black arts. Um, and there are, there are so, I think it's about three or four from the mid eighties. So if you could also do a film season at the BFI at the same time, that'd be very useful. So I had a very, very constructive engagement with one of my um, school teachers about this because I was, uh, I played role-playing games, uh, not Dungeons and Dragons, but it doesn't matter. I played role-playing games at school and the head of, yeah, I think the head of the fifth form was uh, an evangelical Christian and he was concerned that it might be, it might be a little bit satanic, but at the same time, he's very, you know, he's a decent guy and very open-minded. So he's, so he basically said, well, I need you to tell me about what it is that you do in these games and how it works. And I explained it all to him. And he, he said, well, that, that sounds really fun and not at all satanic. So go ahead. I've got no problem with it. <laughs> so that was, I think, a model for constructive engagement with someone who sees the world in a different way. So I advocate that. That's different to when my year nine biology teacher told us, found us all doing a Ouija board and said, that she knew a woman who'd done a Ouija board who then died. She tried to scare us straight, right. and it didn't that, work. You're right. That is very different. That's almost like the opposite story, isn't it? <laughs> I do love you. Yeah, I, I just bought another of those books by. Is it? Uh, I forget his name. That's Jan. Jan Brunvald, is it? Who uh, wrote the Vanishing Hitchhiker, and uh, which was the, one of the first properly collected books of um, urban legends. 
and, I, right. and I've just oh, it sounds good. It's a, it's, it's got all all of the classics because that's that's something that again about facts and information. You know, urban legends were this fascinating way of kind of you know of of fake news of developing different ideas. Where uh, the one that I, I think is an interesting rewrite, depending on your cultural concerns, is that story where you know. And anyway, uh, she went to the doctor, and it turns out there were spiders that had eaten her brain, and that's how she died about a day later. I don't know if you remember that one, and that would either. Be in the 50s that was uh you know she had a beehive hairdo she was a very fashionable woman and they said look because of these headaches we need to shave your head and she said i'm sorry i've got a beehive hairdo it's uh, it's very much my thing and because she didn't have that that's why all the ants ate her brain and then other people would turn it into a religious thing they'd turn it into you know and so he wouldn't take off the headgear because of his religion and uh yeah it turned out all the really small shrews had eaten his brain and there was and it was just interesting bit yeah each time Microwaves, when microwaves yeah. began, um, yeah, those when she died, they did an autopsy. All her, all her innards were, were cooked because she worked in the Red Lion pub. She used to lean against the microwave when they were cooking, and um, yeah, I mean, lungs and everything, absolutely, totally cooked. And I, I, I love, and that, see, that's what fake news used to be just utter yeah. shit, utter stupid, brilliant, gory, weird shit. Why can't we go back to those days? Yeah, good times, good times. So I did somewhat derail the conversation without meaning to, because you were talking about your background as an economist and that you worked on, um, that your uh, research was in game theory. And yeah. then we did take a diversion and it would be really nice to go back to talking about how you got into statistics from there. I don't know. I thought it was a rather joyful diversion, but because uh, the, the actual story is not that exciting. Basically, um, uh, Andrew Dillnot and Michael Blastland, who, so Andrew Dillnot's great pillar of the economics establishment, Michael Blastland, great journalist at the BBC, they created this program called More or Less. They, they ran it for a few years and then they, they stopped. And the BBC were like, oh, well, I guess we're going to have to stop doing this program that we like because, because nobody, nobody else could possibly present a radio program that talks about numbers and debunk politicians saying stupid stuff and then you know, try to understand how the world worked. And then somebody in uh, somebody in Current Affairs, uh, Radio, um, BBC Current Affairs, Nicola Merrick, her name was, said, "Are you sure that literally nobody in the world could possibly <laughs> present a program like that? Because it seems like it's quite a strong concept, and maybe maybe any idiot could actually present it. And uh, give me five minutes, and I'll find you an idiot." And she found me, and I've been doing it ever since. And it turns out it is such a brilliant idea for a program. Uh, it doesn't need somebody brilliant like. Andrew Dill not to present, they can do it with me. And and so ever since then, I have been trying to teach myself statistics because I didn't really know. I had a certain comfort with numbers that comes from training as an economist, but I didn't really know anything about this stuff. And the, the interesting thing is most of the people on the programme don't really know anything about this stuff either. We're just trying to do good basic journalism. Like ask yourself, huh, what's really going on here? What's the real story? What's the context? Who should we talk to? Who... You know, we'll, we'll shed light on it, um, but doing proper journalism through the numbers rather than doing proper journalism by you know trying to get some, you know, some gossip or rumor or scoop, um, and I think that's enough. One of the messages of the book is you don't. I mean, Sir David Spiegelhalter is amazing. You don't need to be Sir David Spiegelhalter to understand some of this stuff. A lot of it is actually quite simple, and it's about not fooling yourself, being curious. Asking an extra question or two, looking for a comparison that means something. 
if you do that, you've solved 95% of these statistical problems. Um, it's only the really technical stuff that, that would trip anybody up. As we mentioned, uh, David Spiegelhodge, which you just mentioned, uh, and it is book shambles, mentioned the Norm Chronicles. Uh, oh, yeah, which... with Michael Blastland, who, who co-created more or less. Yeah, yeah. great book. Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know about a thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. So so in terms of you know, statistics, I, I often think with, with climate change, one of the problems is that a statistic on its own is very rarely of that much use if you yeah. because this is that there are so many and so very often and you can see this both on on people that yeah i know with with the scientists it's it's a really difficult thing we were doing a show the other day where there's something which would be so useful to say this was definitely climate change this 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 this, this was you know human uh you know human credit but but it's not Right. And, and there is, and of course, on the other side, where you will find you will find what appears to be a singular fact, which kind of refutes many different ideas, which we would expect in terms of the, the progress of climate change. And this will then get banded around, removed from all oh. context, removed from all of the, the rest of science. And I think for a lot of non-scientists, people like me, we don't realise that uh, a, a paper on its own is really not worth me reading that. Because it might make yeah. me feel like an expert, but it's written and predominantly for people who have read 500 other papers and are within this world and it is contextualised. Absolutely. And, and a, a good piece of science journalism will give you that context. And you know you're not reading a good piece of science journalism if you're reading something that's not really telling you, well, who else has thought about this? And where does this, this exciting new finding that, you know, I don't know, uh, espresso will give you cancer or whatever, or cure cancer or give you cancer and then cure the cancer. Where, where does this finding sit in the, in the history of thinking about this topic? Is it something new? Is it something that the scientists already expected? Is it kind of really surprising? If it's a, if it's a good piece of science journalism, you're going you're gonna to get that context. Uh, and if it's just some breathless uh, piece on the, you know, the health page of, of a... You know, written by a journalist who's being asked to write ten other pieces the same day. You know, you it, it's it's not going to help. But one of the um, one of the stories I tell in the book, I, I ask people to think about uh, Kickstarter. You know, Kickstarter. You um, you think about the, these products on Kickstarter that are done incredibly well, like the coolest cooler, which raised twenty million dollars, and it's kind of like a cooler, and you know, it's got a boombox in, and you can plug a USB, you know, charge your phone, and so on, and it did really really well. And then there was there was a, the Pebble watch, I think, it was a fancy watch, did, did really well. And every, every time you hear about Kickstarter, you hear about these inc incredibly successful products and you think, oh, I should launch a thing on Kickstarter and become a millionaire. So there's a, an artist called Silvio Luiso who created a website called Kickended. And Kickended, it's just like Kickstarter and the data come from Kickstarter. All it is is just one profile after another of a, of a frozen in, in amber kickstarter campaign that did not make a single penny uh, somebody somebody set up kickstarter to fund their album or the uh, this new line of swimwear or whatever and they could not persuade not even them their own mothers 
to kick in. A single oh, cent. Horrible. Yeah, but but it's so important because uh, there's loads of projects like that on Kickstarter, but you never ever hear about them. You never see them, and like that, which is over the past. 24 oh. years I've been buying scratch cards uh, occasionally with my friend for a bit of fun and would you believe not what a single one of those scratch cards has been a big money winner in yeah. all this time Astonishing. and yet every single week on the news someone wins the lottery how come that doesn't make any sense does it no figure that one out statisticians so um so yeah, I mean the the point linking back to what Robin was saying about climate change. The point is that what we see reported, you know, on social media, in the newspapers, on the BBC, wherever, um, what we hear about is not a random sample of of the world. It's systematically biased one way or another, um, because it's surprising, because it's engaging, because it's backing up our prejudices, um, because it's making people angry, because it's making people laugh. Lots and lots of different reasons. Um, but we're not just you know, getting kind of a, a, a straightforward, unfiltered picture of the world, which is what you would want from if you want to understand climate change. What you want is a straightforward, unfiltered picture of you know, what, what the scientific consensus is. But you're not going to get that by just uh, cracking open a newspaper. What about in terms of you, you talk also about statistics, which are I think was it Harvard, I think, where uh, the average Harvard graduate was uh, making half a million dollars a year. Is it Harvard? Or, yeah. yeah, it was it was it was Yale. But yeah, this Yale. is from Daryl Huff's. This is from Daryl Huff's book. So this is one of these lovely, lovely statistics that because it's a good book, even though he's evil and went to work ah. for the tobacco lobby and did tremendous harm. It's a great little book. Uh, so, yeah, that's one of those ones where um you say, oh, yeah, the average Yale graduate is making half a million dollars. Wow. And then he invites you to go, well, OK, when you say the average Yale graduate, well, selected from what pool? And it turns out um, it's self-reported and it's the people that Yale can find. So all the people who basically just disappeared and are sleeping on park benches, turns out Yale doesn't know where they are, but they know where the billionaires are. Uh, and when they phone people up and they ask them to, to report their own salaries, it turns out you get a pretty big number. So. See, a, a book we've mentioned on this quite a few times before, which is uh, Everybody Lies by uh, Seth Stevens Davidovitz, I think it is. Yeah, um, Davidovitz, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is, uh, I, I really enjoyed that. And that is taking basically uh, kind of Google searches and saying that that's where you find the truth because people aren't, you know, that they, they are anonymous so how again how do you refine what do you think are the best ways of, of, of refining so things like that become true and without the bias we wish to believe in about ourselves yeah so there's one of the things i loved about uh well, i interviewed uh, seth for more or less and he pointed out the uh the contrast between the google searches and the facebook statuses so they go the, the Google searches that began, my husband is, and the Facebook status updates that began, my husband is, or maybe is my husband, is, is my husband. And yes, very, very, the Facebook updates looked very, very different to the Google searches. The Google searches were going to some very dark places and the Facebook updates were just very, very sunny. Um, but, you know, but how do you, um, how do you sort of see through that? So, so one of the things that I think we need to try and do is ask ourselves, what is the underlying process generating this data? Half an hour ago, Robin, you had this wonderful phrase, the fact well, this idea that you go to the fact well and you just sort of 
or, or the fact mine, and you pull facts up. But there's always some process generating these, these facts or these data. Um, and the process can be biased in all sorts of quite subtle ways. Um, uh, but if you think about it, if you understand the ways, understand the underlying biases, then you can at least try to correct from them for them. So um, I mean, one nice little example uh, that I give in the book is um, uh, an app used in Boston, Massachusetts to find potholes called Street Bump. And uh, you and this is kind of the, the early days of smartphones. And I'm like, well, they've got accelerometers in them. So you could download an app onto your smartphone. You drive around. And every time you go over a, a big pothole in the road, your phone will just go and uh, will, will register the bump. And then it sends a, sends a message to City Hall and says, here's where I am. And I just went over a big old, big old bump. Um, so really quite a nice, clever idea. But when you start to think about, well, okay, so what does that do? That generates reports of potholes that rich people drive over. <laughs> um, because, you know, this is 2010, 2011. These are people with, with first-generation iPhones. Um, and, and, and when you hear about it, you go, oh, yes, of course, of course, that's what it would do. Um, but it's very easy to, to overlook this. I mean, the, we're having this conversation uh, in the middle of the... A level exam omni shambles, uh, and turns out there's this business algorithmic process that has dished out these grades that people have found to be incredibly unfair. I think for very good reasons, uh, but again, it, it's 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 partly because nobody seemed to stop and go. I wonder what would be the the result of this algorithmic process. I wonder how this would actually play out. Um, well, I... that brings us to an end. Oh, I was going to quickly ask what you've been reading recently that you've really enjoyed and that you'd recommend to people. So I have, funnily enough, given our earlier conversation, I've just finished a really good book about the history of Monopoly by, uh, I think it's by Mary Pillon, not Margaret Pillon. I think it's by Mary Pillon. And so a warning, I, I, so I read the first three or four pages and I thought, oh, I thought this was going to be really good, but it's not good. And then about eight pages in, I'm like, oh, no, it's actually really good. And I just got, I just got hooked. Uh, and it's a, it's a real page turner. Um, it's just the history, both of the long history of the game, but also the history of a very nasty legal case where they tried to, um, they tried to squash somebody who created a game called Anti-Monopoly. And he fought back. And then what happened? So um, I think it's called The Monopolists by um, Ms. M. Pillon. I think it's Mary Pillon. Um, lovely book, lovely book. See, now I'm trying to remember, like with a psychic medium event, whether it was you that brought up Monopoly or Josie, because I remember Josie bringing up Monopoly and me immediately thinking, that is amazing. Tim knows about everything. I mean, to, to know about that minutiae there uh, of, of the rules of Monopoly that was a revelation both for Josie and I. But I now can't I remember I, if you snuck in Monopoly first. Uh, Josie, I, think I, yeah. I, dangled, I dangled the bait and Josie went for it. Darren Brown over here. Yeah, Darren Brown and Doris Stokes together as one. Um, the uh, Show, I'd say. Um, I would recommend, by the way, non-book stuff, just on the themes of today. I've, I've mentioned it on, on this uh, before, uh, I think, but uh, Led by the Science, which is Philip Ball's Radio 4 documentary um, about science advice and government, uh, obviously particularly based around the, the pandemic, but it also gives some background and looks to the future as well and, and how what we can learn from this is uh, is really good. And the other thing is False Hope, 
which is the uh, the documentary on BBC Three, which I, I keep mentioning because I think it's really worth seeing, um, which is about the kind of industry around creating the idea that uh, the uh, what we might call mainstream cancer cures are, are a load of bunkum. And uh, it's a very well-made um, documentary kind of using scepticism at, at its best and realizing why it's so important to uh... so just on the subject just on the subject of philip ball i can't let you get away without so i was on celebrity university challenge or christmas university challenge or whatever they or whatever they call it this christmas um and i was reading this philip ball book about uh history of irrigation in china he's just he writes about everything he's amazing i'm reading this amazing book by philip ball going oh philip ball he's so clever oh i wish i could be clever like philip ball and i show up in the green room and philip ball is on the other team and um he just you know, presume, proceeded to give me a total curb stomping we were completely thrashed although his there was a question on probability and he was rubbish at that but he was brilliant at everything else uh i thought you you know you're in trouble when you show up for University Challenge and you're reading a book by the guy on the other team. Yeah, he's so good. Philip Philip Ball, if, you, if people out there, if you've not read... I don't even know where you, you should start. You know, um, A Critical Mass was the, the book which... Uh, Critical Mass is great. Probably... Amazing book. That that was like the next step up for him, wasn't it? It won a few prizes, I think. Um, and, and that's... But everything he does, that book, I forget its name now, which is all about how certain German physicists who kind of, you you know, with their cognitive dissonance, went, hang on, no, 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 we can work for the Third Reich. Um, because I think, you know, and, and that idea that you can detach what is going on uh, within that government and within that country from, oh, no, but we're scientists. It's fine. It's a really, I, I wish I could remember what it's called, but it's a very, very interesting book, quite a kind of revelatory book. You see it with, um, with journalists this week, being able to, go alongside the boats of people who are desperately trying to flee persecution and make a report about it. And in their heads, they're justifying that as somehow not despicable, unjustifiable behaviour. Well, see, uh, there, there's no. some article this week about, I don't know who she is, she's some celebrity who's uh, given birth and uh, she's charging a, a, a small fee for every time the photo gets used. And there's, I saw an article that was in Outrage and you think this is such a funny thing where newspapers, which spend all their money trying to, you know, give you, right, we're going to give you this amount of money so we can have that and no one else can. And then someone goes, well, do you know what? I'm going to take over and I'm going to charge and I'm just going to sell them myself. If you that, yep, there we go, and yep, you can have that. And now it's an outrage. Is how can they take this beautiful, innocent moment and monetize it? That's our job. Yeah, that's our job. Gosh, um, Tim, you've frozen up for for my bit for a while. So, oh, no, Tim's been frozen for almost the whole show. But what is really impressive about Tim, and again, statistically, I don't know, but on on all three occasions that Tim's frozen, he's had exactly the same expression. Yes, a very gentle, thoughtful expression. Yeah, it's really good. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad to hear it. I'm sorry about the the dodgy tech. I'll have to fix that before the book tour. Um, but um, th- thank you for thank you for tolerating that and for inviting me on. But even better for conspiracy theorists, the nature of the structure of your attic is such that you have a triangle directly above your head, which those wishing to say that you are part of the Radio 4 Illuminati, you've now given them a whole... We're waiting at the last minute. Suddenly the eye is just going to flash in the distance. (laughs) 
Excellent work. Um, so we've never even mentioned the name of your book, by the way, which is How to Make That's the true. World Add Up, Ten Rules of Thinking Differently About Numbers. That's Tim Harford's latest book, and it is out in... Uh, it may well, In fact, it won't be out quite yet. It's going to be out in the middle of uh, September. And as Tim said, Tim will be doing uh, a book tour which will take on your screens wherever you may be while he remains exactly where he is while he does the, you know, the Cheltenham Book Festival and the Aberdeen Book Festival and the Glasgow Book Festival and the Belfast Book Festival and all the others. They will all be from different places in his attic. Each one will have a different clue as to uh, his Illuminati uh, identity. It's true. All true. Thanks, Tim. Thanks very much, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Trent Burton, for producing as usual and doing all the other things that he does with Cosmic Shambles. Thanks very much, everyone, for listening. Please support us on Patreon. It's very, very helpful. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is the URL to support the show and get extended editions of each and every episode, as well as lots of other goodies. Tim's book, How to Make the World Add Up, is out now. Go and get yourself a copy of that. Back next week with another new episode. Uh, I can't tell you who's on next week because uh, I'm frantically trying to find the spreadsheet that tells me the answer to that question, but I can't find it. So it will be a surprise for all of us. Have a great week. Stay safe. Don't forget to subscribe to the Science Shambles podcast as well to get the new Science Book Shamble episodes that will be coming out very soon as well. Search for it in your podcast apps or just go to cosmicshambles.com slash science shambles and there's lots of clickable links there for your convenience. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.